Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. This is Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. All eyes are going to be on DBS's first quarter earnings out today. DBS has a presence in 18 markets. It is the largest financial services conglomerate in Southeast Asia with a market cap of over $49 billion. Meanwhile, as COVID-19 rages on, the U.S. oil fund said that USO will sell all of its West Texas intermediate contracts for June delivery in favor of longer term contracts and we're well in the midst of earnings season and we've seen some companies hit harder than others when it comes to the pandemic. Alphabet announcing profits were damaged even more than expected. Tesla, on the other hand, reported its shares have soared. And on the other side of the world, China's announced its 2035 tech standards aiming to set the standards across everything from AI to 5G. So, investors, what should you make of all this news? How can we make sense of the volatility we're joined by Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect, to see through what markets are talking about this morning. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing good. Let's start with news at home, big news. DBS's first quarter profits have dropped nearly 30% to a two-and-a-half-year low. DBS opened its books just a few hours ago and notes that provisions for bad loans surged during the first quarter of the year. So investors are going to be focusing on any comments from Chief Executive Officer Piyush Gupta on DBS's full-year outlook and on dividend prospects at a media briefing due to start in about 25 minutes time. What do you make of the latest figures, Arun? Right. Like this quarter, obviously, given the exceptional circumstances, given the COVID pandemic, it's basically like a mulligan in golf, right? Where uh, companies have come out with pretty much any kind of results and investors have been extremely forgiving. It's all about what the outlook is going to be and in what state and shape is the balance sheet of uh, the company. We've talked a lot about uh, Singapore banks and U.S. banks in the past, where off the, in comparison to other banks across the world, uh, these two areas, at least in my opinion, have mm. relatively more robust of a balance sheet. Taking a look at DBS, right? It was always going to be not about the earnings this quarter, because as I mentioned, you know, investors are going to write that off. It's all about what the expectations are and what provisions they've taken on their balance sheet. To give an idea of the effect of the pandemic, last year, uh, the loan provisions that were set aside by DBS were something like about 70 to $100 million. That number has gone 10 times, or 100 times, sorry, to that of $1 billion. So you have this case where, and of that $1 billion, uh, two-thirds has been set aside as just you know a general loan provision. Uh, because even they have literally no idea what the actual after effects of this pandemic will be. One third, or roughly about 350 million, were set aside against the, you know, the big uh, Hinleong group uh, collapse that happened uh, over the last week. So uh, a couple of uh, positive signs or green shoes that I can take from it, though, is that the quarterly dividend has been maintained. Mm. So that's great, especially for a lot of retail investors in Singapore, where you can buy DBS stock at roughly, you know, now po- uh, post the earnings release, shares have popped up by around 4%. You're getting a dividend yield of about 5% uh, based on current prices. 
And uh, that's great for a dividend for a retail person, unlike leaving your uh, some of your savings in your bank, basically earning zero. Another interesting thing to look at or to keep watch out for is going to be what uh, Piyush is going to talk about, net interest margin expectations. Net interest margin is nothing but uh, the difference in interest that a bank can charge, uh, be it a corporate or be it borrowers, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the interest that they have to pay to the savings uh, of customers. Obviously, with front-end rates so low, uh, that's reasonably beneficial to banks because they don't need to pay any uh, interest to any deposit that you have with the bank. The problem, though, is the back end of the curve is extremely flat also because you have a lot of central banks sitting and buying uh, long-dated bonds to ensure the cost of capital for SMEs to borrow is kept relatively low. Good for SMEs, potentially bad for banks in the short run at least. So it'll be interesting to hear what uh, Piyush's comments are going to be about that. Indeed. Some good news for shareholders in this morning's announcement that DBS will hold the line on dividend payments at 33 cents a share. Does this surprise you? Would you have, have expected DBS to hold more money in preparation for bad times ahead? So uh, yes and no, uh, to be honest, because I, I think stopping share buybacks was a sensible thing to do, like mm -hmm. about two or three weeks ago, when the initial collapse of uh, DBS a share price took place. You know, there were a lot of news headlines about DBS still willing to buy uh, shares back. While it might have been good for shareholders in the short run, I think the negative publicity uh, that would have led to that would be uh, quite damaging to the brand. Because at the end of the day, you know, we've not seen the end of this. The amount of loans and the amount of capital requirements, especially for SMEs over the next three months to I would say nine months, is going to be tremendous. And that is where banks can really take, uh, you know, a front footing on that to make up for all the sins of the past, especially for the 2008 crisis, uh, where they were the more of a, you know, a central figure, I would say, yep. uh, to take advantage of that right now by trying to issue out more loans and uh, enriching purely the shareholders against that, even if it's in an extremely stable footing, which I believe it is, is not the best uh, from a PR perspective. Keeping the dividends though, to some extent, I think is very beneficial to a lot of retail investors. So I think that can be construed as actually a positive. Uh, so I think they've played that quite well, to be honest. I want to turn to Chinese banks now. They've been offering a relatively high dividend yield of about 6%. If they keep that up, they're facing more than 40 billion US dollars in payouts. They are reportedly Chinese banks under pressure from China's Communist Party to continue making good payments. But then there are the economics of it as well. So what do you think? Are China's big banks likely to continue paying high yields or will they cut back? I mean, you hit the nail on the head, right, Michelle, where you have these conflicting factors where uh, the board of directors of a company has to be responsible for the shareholders. But at the same time, when you operate in a country like China, there's a lot more, uh, I would say, like a passive dealings with the government where you need to ensure uh, the government mandate and the, the party line has to be adhered to also. And we can see that across the spectrum, banks, telcos, uh, utility companies, oil and gas companies, they might not be looking for the shareholders' best interest, uh, which can definitely affect uh, share prices in both the short and long run. I think the biggest question mark uh, is going to be how the country comes out of this crisis, given the fact that uh, the country as a whole is extremely in debt. Um, you have a lot of 
consumers or uh, citizens of China potentially having overextended or overleveraged themselves buying property in the country. And a lot of loans have been doled out by banks against that. The problem always is, you know, bank balance sheets are opaque in general. And now you, on the other, on, you know, given the pandemic crisis, you have this other extra issue to deal with where you have banks sitting and dealing with an unprecedented collapse in uh, economic numbers in terms of, uh, you, know, you name it, right? Like the manufacturing output, uh, the amount of NPL that is going through the space in uh, the financial sector in China. Whether they'll be able to maintain the headline dividends at over 6%, uh, I think it will be a lot more on a case-by-case basis of individual names over there. But overall, I think it will be a lot more difficult for them to be able to maintain solid balance sheet strength as compared to U.S. as well as Singaporean banks. All right. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect. We're getting his reading of financial markets. Let's turn to some earnings, Arun. Google's parent company, Alphabet, is reporting better than expected first quarter numbers this week. Sales came in at more than 33 billion US dollars, up 14% from a year ago. Ad revenue, advertising revenue is slowing down. Did so in March. Overnight, though, Alphabet shares jumped nearly 9%. So let's start with the online ad market. Alphabet CFO Ruth Porat notes there was an abrupt drop-off in ad revenue in March, but that Alphabet has yet to see further deterioration. Does this surprise you? And is online advertising stabilizing or even ready to bounce back? So it's interesting where, you know, you read these uh, news articles like a couple of weeks back where travel websites, right, like your Expedia and Mm Booking.com, they are some of the largest purchaser of uh, Google ad space. Uh, in terms of numbers, they roughly invest or, uh, sorry, buy close to four to five billion dollars a year worth of ad space from Google. Those two companies themselves were dropping their five billion respective numbers down to less than one billion for this year. So I think investors went into uh, the earnings announcements of Google and Facebook both of which announced, you know, yesterday and day before, that basically make up most of the online uh, ad spend Mm. with a pretty dismal expectation that, okay, you know, when you have these two of these largest companies, two of these largest travel agents dropping their ad spend so much, SME is obviously hurting a lot. Uh, What's going to happen to, uh, you know, these ad companies of Google and Facebook? And they realize that, you know, uh, based on the numbers at least, that all is not lost. Uh, the CFO, as you mentioned, you know, there was an abrupt drop-off. So it was kind of like the tale of two quarters, right? Where up till March middle, uh, they were seeing uh, an extremely robust uh, market for their uh, product. And then towards the end of March, it completely collapsed. That being said, though, I think a couple of interesting points that also came about during the earnings uh, call, where Google said that what they can see for not just the first uh, four weeks of April, but also for this quarter, they only expect around a 10% drop in ad revenue. And uh, Facebook also came out with these numbers saying that they're expecting basically a flat line of uh, ad revenue growth, which is quite phenomenal given that uh, a lot of ex- investors, you know, forgave whatever would have happened in Q1, but they were thinking that Q2 would be quite terrible. And you have uh, these two companies, which basically touches 
you know, five to six billion people, pretty much every single person on this planet, mm. they're coming out saying that, uh, yes, it is bad and it is obviously still uncertain. But, uh, you know, just to make a small little shout out over here, we do think the expectations in Q2 will be flat to negative 10%. And I think investors were definitely going for a lot more of a negative news. And hence, you could see the pop-up. Like, Google went up by over 10%. And Facebook right now is trading at, like, $215, uh, up 17% uh, overnight. Indeed. If we look at Tesla, another high-profile company, and its controversial boss, Elon Musk, of course, the electric car maker has just posted its third quarterly profit. It netted $16 million U.S. dollar. The company seems to be doing well despite production shutdowns and de- demand disruptions and uncertainty about how soon an electric car maker can restore more normal operations. So Tesla shares jumping nearly 9% in after-hours trade and its strong performance, meaning that Elon Musk is getting close to a windfall payment that's going to dwarf other corporate bonuses, potential payout of $725 million U.S. million. So I realize Tesla is exceeding expectations, but does a quarterly profit of $16 million really merit a $700 million bonus? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, the company's market cap right now, I think after the pop-up, is close to something like $160 billion for a company that manufactures, you know, under 500,000 cars a year. But as you mentioned, right, this guy is like larger than life. Uh, 750 million earnings, uh, a potential payout just this year. And based on certain clauses, he can earn up to $55 billion. Uh, You know, obviously the share price has to go up close to about 5x or 6x from now which is not, uh, uh, you know, unforeseeable, to be honest. But in terms of investors, you know, I think uh, Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, said it best. Uh, when, in, when a shareholder uh, asked uh, Charlie, you know, what do you think about Tesla? Mm-hmm. And Charlie Munger looks at him and says, I wouldn't buy it. Mm-hmm. And then two seconds later, he says, I wouldn't short it. So, you know, this, this company is basically a widow maker, right? Like you buy it, you short it. It's extremely difficult to manage uh, from an investment management point of view. And this is someone who has been burnt in the past shorting the stock. So uh, personal take, you know, all respect to the person, uh, definitely has done a fantastic job of, in fact, now that he's larger than the market caps of GM and Ford combined, He's basically convinced a lot of the traditional automakers that climate change is a big problem in this world and you need to be able to try and get out of the whole fossil fuel burning products that you create and try and go down the electric path. Uh, Just in terms of this quarter, I think, uh, you know, sure, it was an accounting profit. Uh, They eked out a small little, uh, you know, 60, 70 million dollar profit based on gap earnings. I think one thing that should be a little bit of a consideration that uh, all shareholders should apply is they burned nearly a billion dollars of free cash flow. And we could see, uh, based on the earnings call that just finished a couple of hours back, uh, there was definitely tension was in the air where Elon Musk was literally calling the U.S. government fascist. Yes. That uh, people have to, you know, uh, I can't believe that a, a country like the U.S. is forcing uh, its citizens to stay indoors. 
he literally dropped the F-bomb in an earnings report, which is another, you know, it's shocking regardless. I know. So do, do you think markets are going to punish him for such remarks? He was slow to follow lockdown rules, fighting them in court, and then, of course, using the F-word. Uh, what do you think? I think at the end of the day, the guy has managed to pull off a true miracle by even coming up to you know, 400,000, 500,000 cars production this year at, a, at the cheapest cost of the Model 3 at something like 32, 33,000 US. And people expect that of him, right? Like this is not the first day that he's come out with saying stuff like this. He's been doing this since, uh, you know, time immemorial. Like the guy has been going off at the government. He's, he's, a, he's a maverick. And I think shareholders, have taken that into their stride and they realize that if you want a true genius to be running your company, which don't take me wrong, every shareholder who's long definitely does, mm. uh, you have to put up with uh, something like this. Now, obviously, the taking the company private at $420 tweet, that goes beyond, uh, you know, that goes into the legal realm of being sued and thrown into jail and stuff. So that's a separate ballgame altogether. But I think uh, the SEC did come down hard or relatively hard on him. And they ensured that, uh, you know, stuff like that will not repeat again. I think all the other superfluous statements, I think investors are just, uh, you know, they're just turning a blind eye towards it. All right. So just to clarify, you agree with Munger then? I mean, investors are scratching their heads looking at Tesla shares having risen 90% so far this year. 90. So bubble or goodbye, you're on the side of... I wouldn't buy it, but I wouldn't short it. Is that what you stand? <laughs> Call me burnt, but it's it's very difficult to make. Uh, you know, all, all respect to people who have been long the stock; they've done phenomenally well. And, and just one thing to also add: it's not just a one-trick pony, right? It's not just the Model Three. Mm. Uh, the Model Y that is announced in the has been announced in the U.S., which is like a SUV. Uh, that was the first product that was profitable in the first quarter of release. So, you know, every other car, every other product that Tesla has come out with, they basically burnt a truckload of money uh, in the first quarter and, you know, even for the first year of uh, starting production. Mm -hmm. The Model Y, what they've done is they basically leveraged the Model 3 supply chain and parts to the point of almost like 70% apparently of uh, products and stuff that's being used on the supply chain and the manufacturing line of Model 3 can be used for Model Y. And we all know that the U.S. is this massive SUV-loving country. Uh, the fact that they've been able to price an SUV at something like around 50000 U.S. dollars, profitable for the first quarter, uh, there definitely is you know, a very positive sign. Is it worth $160 billion? Most definitely not. So personally, I'm taking a very, you know, step aside and admire both sides, whichever <laughs> side wins, all respect to them. <laughs> all right. And on that theme of sort of, you know, edging your bets, looking at both sides, I spoke with uh, founder and director of strategy of VFS Group, Jack Cousy, um, because China's 2035 standards were just talked about. And um, here's what he thinks the standards, which, by the way, for the listener, are these unifying standards China hopes to uh, put out for the world so that it gets to set the standards in the world of tech. So Jack Cousy saying China's 2035 standards could be a provocation in the tech war or the U.S.-China trade war and that the best thing that investors can do is to look at 
being on both sides. Have a listen. Is China going to take the lead on the tech stage? China is set to release an ambitious 15-year blueprint called China Standards 2035 that will lay out its plans to set the global standards for the next generation of technologies ranging from artificial intelligence to 5G networks. We're joined by Jack Cousy, founder and director of strategy at the VFS Group. So you see China Standards 2035 as a possible provocation between which side we want to pick. I guess I just want to take it back a little bit and, and talk about what was the, one of the biggest news stories in 2019, and that was the trade war between the US and China. Mm. This is simply an escalation of that. And when we talk about what the trade war is really about, I like to talk about it like a chess game. Right? So you play chess, I'm sure, right? Yeah. So think about a chess game, you know, you've got pieces on the board, things like the pawns, they were flat screen TVs and tennis balls and clothing or apparel and the, the horse was soybeans, pork and corn and, you know, the rook was access to supply lines. But the queen and the king on the chessboard was tech. It really was a tech war. Mm. When you talk about the queen, it was about 4G, 5G, artificial intelligence, robotics, the internet of things, and then the king was really the semiconductor. So... This, I believe, is just an extension of that. I feel the Chinese are feeling a little bit emboldened at this point in time. Both sides have just gone 12 rounds in terms of the trade war, um, and this is just an extension of that, and it's an extension of Chinese tech influence across the globe. Let's look at the largest companies in the world, right? They're all tech companies. The top seven companies in the world are all tech. Two of them are Chinese, five of them are in the U.S. If you extend that out further and you talk about 20, the top 25, 30, you'll find a big portion of them are tech, probably about half, And again, they're made up of Chinese and U.S. companies. So, you know, people often ask me, what do I invest in tech? I I know you keep talking about tech. There's infotech, there's, you know, social media tech. There's all types of tech. To simplify it for investors and for me, really there are only two types of tech. There's U.S. tech and there's Chinese tech. And my opinion is you should own both. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect. What do you make of Jack Cousy's thoughts there on buying both sides? It's definitely from a risk-averse investment management process. It makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's uh, you have a country like the U.S. that's obviously been the undisputed world leader for the past uh, 70 to 100 years, give or take. And suddenly you've got uh, another country that's come up, which, you know, while it was basically like over 30, 40% of the world's GDP a couple of centuries ago, they've come up in the past, 20, 25 years with remarkable growth. There was obviously going to be friction with uh, both sides trying to posture for the number one position. And uh, as your speaker rightfully mentioned, the holy grail right now for a business is technology. The top uh, five, seven companies in the world by market cap, any trillion dollar market cap company in the world right now, they're all technology companies. So you can clearly see the battlefield has moved from all the other smaller items like uh, agriculture, uh, you know, utilities, uh, some kind of manufacturing setup is all going to eventually be fought in the technology space. Who the eventual winners are going to be? I think the world is large enough to have two massive uh, behemoths like fight it out. The problem, though, is that the way they're going about uh, posturing for that number one position is going to be extremely detrimental to us as an end consumer. Because, you know, you already had 
while, while competition is good to some extent, it, it has to be done in the right way. Mm. And by that, what I mean is over here, you have all these barriers that will be uh, erected by the respective governments of, if you come up with like an interesting product, you know, IP it, sell it to the world, let the world benefit from it, while the company can benefit from it too. But when you have cases where these massive trade walls are erected and the best technology cannot be, uh, you know, what is the benefit, what is the beauty of a, of a technology company? It can be scaled up infinitely. It can cross borders seamlessly, unlike a manufacturing, out, uh, a manufacturing unit where it will take a lot more time to scale up. That's the beauty of technology. And that's why you've seen technology companies grow so rapidly. The problem is when you erect these trade walls, uh, the best technology might not flow from one place to the other. Like a good example might be Huawei, right? They've done a phenomenal job in coming up with extremely cheap, yet very efficient, and the best tech in the world in the, in the space of 5G. But you have, uh, you know, potentially correctly or potentially incorrectly so, you have countries like the US, Australia, or many countries in Europe that are erecting these walls that saying, you know, uh, our safety, uh, security is a lot more of a concern. Hence, we are not willing to take this technology, which we all know is better than our own homegrown technology. And that causes uh, problems in terms of the eventual growth or the long-term growth of the world as a whole. Right. And that's a bit sad. So for an investor, you know, You've got to put your money on. You've got to bet your money on both horses, China as well as the U.S. You just have no choice. But I hope that the two countries can come together, come up with some kind of a framework and a structure to ensure that a healthy competition or a healthy competitive environment can be created. So buy both Amazon and Alibaba, basically. Uh, buy Amazon, <laughs> Alibaba, Facebook, Google, Baidu, you name it, right? <laughs> Valuations be banned at this point of time because with the Fed printing unlimited amounts of money, valuation takes a backseat. <laughs> Wonderful talking to you. Thank you for your insights. Appreciate your time. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect in Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.